0: Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman.
2: Welcome to Seasons. I'm Marisol Castro.
1: And I'm Chef Plum.
2: It's so hard to overstate our love for coffee. It's how we start each day. It's how we energize ourselves throughout the day. It's how we connect with friends. We meet over
1: coffee. We love it so much, we're dedicating an hour to learning more about it. Coming up, we'll talk to a local coffee shop owner, a local roaster, and the author of the book, Craft Coffee. Plus, we'll shout out your favorite coffee shops from our Instagram page.
2: And we'll also talk to Stuart Lee Allen. He wrote the book, The Devil's Cup, A History of the World According to Coffee.
1: But first, Rene Martinez, owner of J. Rene Coffee Roasters in West Hartford, is not a coffee historian, but he finds it impossible to talk about coffee without considering its historical significance as well as the social value of coffee.
2: Renee, I have to say, I know this is um, not a visual medium, but I'm staring at you and you're in front of a contraption that looks like maybe it belongs in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. What's <laughs> happening behind you? <laughs>
0: That is a 12-kilo roaster. Yeah. Actually, the piece of equipment that you should really appreciate is that little, it's actually a panel, control panel, that belonged to two circa 1910 Molitor coffee roasters that I found in an abandoned building. What? And what was really, yeah, and what was really fascinating about that is it really talked about what coffee history was all about in Connecticut that a lot of people just didn't know.
2: Unbelievable. So give me a few bullet points now that you've opened up Pandora's box of coffee history in the state of Connecticut.
0: <laughs> yeah. What's really interesting is that a lot of people don't realize that, you know, we were roasting coffee much earlier than what was even during the Civil War. And even though the West Coast gets a lot of credit for the resurgence of coffee when it comes to uh, what we consider this third wave of coffee, meaning coffee is an artisanal food source you can't look at that without looking at the history behind it. And I always tell people that in order to understand present-day perspectives, you need to also look at your history. Sure. Because to understand where you are now, everything evolves. Right. So I tell a lot of those who are young into coffee, don't just focus on the new equipment and a lot of the new ways of doing things, but look at the social value and what coffee meant to so many people 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. You will be shocked at what you will find, the similarities that you will find, as well as what are its contrasts.
2: So then to that point, what did coffee mean for communities back then versus what coffee means to communities now? Is there a huge disparity, or have we evolved?
0: I would say yes, and I would say no, like everything in life. And the first thing that you have to understand is that coffee is a social beverage. In other words, it has one of the few unregulated, if not the only unregulated psychoactive drug, which is caffeine, that has the intended effect of accelerating the neuroreceptors in your brain. It's a natural, there's a natural reason why you drink coffee in the morning and not at night. It alerts you. You process information a lot quicker. There's a natural reason why you don't historically drink wine in the morning. You do it during the evening because it slows that down. So the social value of coffee, I think, has always existed and the importance, which is why there are many even different movements that people attribute coffee as an important vehicle for social change, revolutions and things like that. What I see that is different is that we have mass marketed the psychoactive effect. And we just talk about the caffeine as if that is the most important thing. And to me, caffeine is just one aspect of coffee. Um, To me, when I think about our business or our business model, we created a coffee shop and we called it an artisanal coffee gathering place, Mm -hmm. meaning it's a venue for social engagement. More than ever, and I bring this up because we never offered Wi-Fi in our shop.
2: That's blasphemy. I know. Oh my gosh, I couldn't imagine a teenager right now going to a coffee shop and not knowing what the Wi-Fi is.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. And what I realized is one of the biggest reasons, and it's just a perception and it's just our ethos, but what I realized is it just was no different than, and you can recall, it's like feeling driving, taking the subway, mm-hmm. and sitting next to someone and acting as if they don't exist. Right. I did not want that. Social engagement is so, part, it's so important in our culture. And in my family, it's even loud, and it's boisterous, and it's very emotional. Mm-hmm. So that was the environment that I wanted to create. By taking away that distraction, more people were engaged. And what I'm realizing now during this global health crisis is what are we missing? Social engagement. We realize that a virtual world is not a world that makes us comfortable as human beings. It's a part of it and a very important one. And I embrace all the technology in the world, but I also embrace humanity. And I believe that your best experience in coffee is not necessarily where it's coming from, but the social impact that coffee can have between two or more people.
2: I love that. And as you're talking to me, I'm sort of recalling in my own memory the very nature of coffee as being this social gathering of sorts, right? You say when you meet someone, hey, you want to meet over coffee. I've done that in New York. I've done that in Connecticut. I've done that in Prague. I've done that in Puerto Rico. I've done that in Brazil. I've done that in so many different places because it's this very universal thing. You meet for coffee, right? It's kind of safe, which brings me to my next inquiry about the third space. What exactly does that mean, your coffee shop, as, as being the third
0: space? I promote a third space environment, which uh, an author by the name of Ray Oldenburg published a book called The Great Good Place. Um, I believe that's what it's called. But it was actually very inspirational, which was to create an environment for social Community development where you could not control or channel the forces that had an influence on you For example, you can't Through a through an open space. You can't stop the person that has political views in opposite of yours Mm -hmm. You may not agree with them, but you listen to them. They either challenge your beliefs They either reaffirm your beliefs or they cause you to question them. Mm -hmm. So I've always believed, and I learned this many moons ago, uh, I had a preacher once say, no matter how thin you slice a piece of bologna, it's got two sides to it. (laughs) And one of the things that I've learned, having friends and family on both sides of the camp, as we look at the political discourse, for example, in our country, and uh, the beliefs, we have people, I always say, we're not that far apart. We have people that want a prosperous nation, people that want to provide for their family, We just disagree on how we get there, but we want the same things. And what a great opportunity to use coffee as a way of creating that social engagement in a way that we can still break bread as friends, even though at times we may end that conversation with that sense of respect, knowing that they want the same things that we want. We just have different opinions on how to get there.
2: Renee, I have to tell you, I'm listening to you, and I feel like I want to start this peaceful, caffeinated revolution. But back to coffee, Um, you are in an active coffee shop, your own. So for folks listening, we hear the clinking and clanking. What exactly is going on over there?
0: Uh, we're serving a lot of coffee. We're super (laughs) blessed that we have a community that has embraced some of the changes that we've had to make to respond to the global health crisis. It is overwhelming to realize what an impact it has.
2: When Renee talks about community in the coffee world, there are two communities, the local and the global He says understanding where coffee comes from, and specifically the lives of people growing and picking it, inspires a deeper appreciation of coffee.
0: I'm working with a grower in Puerto Rico. I lived there approximately 13 years of my life. I'm working with uh, a local grower who is trying to evaluate the quality of their first crop of coffee post-hurricane uh, Maria? Maria.
2: Wow.
0: So we're working and we're sending samples and we're, we've got this new technology with, we're using uh, an ICAO roaster that allows us to have the same machine to develop the same profile so that we can understand exactly what that profile tastes in, you know, over a thousand miles away. And that enables us to give them some qualitative analysis to help them understand, you know, how much, is improving and things like that and it allows us though to tell the story about an island that was once a major producer of coffee Mm -hmm. over a hundred years ago and to see what impact it has to understand the sacrifices that people make i've been blessed to travel to central south america uh, when it comes to countries in africa from rwanda congo uh, burundi uh, kenya ethiopia in Asia, from Indonesia to China, India, when you look at coffee in all these different countries, there's so much that resonates. And the one thing that resonates the most, how labor-intensive this coffee coffee is to produce. Mm -hmm. And those most affected are those most underrepresented, which are farmers.
3: Mm -hmm. I get
0: very sensitive. We market coffee so much that we really fail to realize when I say when you create a community program, when you create a social program, be very mindful of what the outcomes are because how much of that eventually translates to a better lifestyle to our farmers. And the reality is with all our fair trade, with all our organic, everything that we impose and the misunderstandings of all of that, at the end of the day, how much of an impact, how much are we improving the quality of life for people that labor so hard for so many years And all you have to do is look at their hands. Mm -hmm. All you have to see are the 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 frown lines. The frown lines of being baked in the sun, because it is not as as glorious as it is uh, when you're growing uh, grapes in wine. You know, coffee tends to be a lot harder than that. And for those who've picked coffee, and I've done it for just a few hours, um, (laughs) it's amazing. And there's so much that needs to be told that has yet not been shared with respect to the sacrifices that they make to produce the quality cups that we enjoy.
2: Full disclosure, I do have a soft spot for Rene. He's from the Bronx, like me. He's Puerto Rican, also like me. And he's found a way through his roast called Victus to give back. Victus Coffee even sponsored a Rwandan cycling team.
0: Victus started, I started cycling late in my years. Always a competitive nature. And I was training for some races and I was watching It was a documentary called Rising from the Ashes, how Rwanda created its national cycling team post-genocide. I was bawling, and I just came up with this idea, what if? Came up with this idea of what coffee could do, and I sent it to one of the uh, main actors of the documentary, Jonathan Jacques Boyer, who's the first American to race in the Tour de France. I never thought he'd respond to it. He says, I read your email, loved it. You should talk to my wife, and from there came this idea that for two years approximately, um, the uh, Rwandan national team uh, rode with this Victus uh, wristband. And it was a testament of how a small little (laughs) coffee shop was like a David (laughs) in a Valley of Goliaths. And the whole goal of Victus was to create a coffee program that took a portion of the proceeds to help organizations that promote wellness advocacy and community through endurance sports but that changed we no longer consider it as endurance sports but we consider everyone has the athlete inside them and we want to be more inclusive than exclusive we're blessed to have a team um, and i i want to make clear there's a a lady by the name of ann mercer who does an amazing job to help navigate all the different ways that victus tries to say you know what we'd love to be a part of that um, and that along with a lot of like our involvement with food share does that same purpose, which is to give back.
2: So I'm curious when you walk into a coffee shop, yours or someone else's, what are you ordering?
0: It doesn't really matter to me. What? I and I'll explain. I'm a Q grader, which is the equivalent of a coffee sommelier. I've been a roaster instructor, I've been a lab inspector. I was one of the first to certify lab and in- Nairobi, Kenya. I've been a competitor. I've competed on a national circuit. I've been a committee member for the SEA. And the reason why I bring all of that up, and I say this humbly, (laughs) the reason why I bring all that up is because when people ask that question, I can only think of an experience when I was in Colombia and I brought an assistant with me who worked at the shop, very gifted individual, And he said, this gentleman came who was the, the gentleman who was Transporting us to the different locations, and he said he, he brought this coffee, and the coffee was really this low grade coffee, and it didn 't taste all that great, but and my assistant said i 'll never have this cup again and I said, May that never come out of your mouth again mm-hmm. because he provided that cup of coffee with all, all the love mm-hmm. and all the the joy of of expressing what he believed was was a best representation of his country and We should not ever be in a situation where we think that we know so much that we not understand the true value of coffee, Mm. which is, again, that social beverage. And if I am going to take something that I consider maybe not be the very best, I will judge it not by its quality but by the social value that it has. And to me, the best cup of coffee is probably the best the coffee that I enjoy with my mom in the morning. You know, the few times that I've had the privilege of, Being with my mom on Sunday mornings and how happy that makes her to have her children nearby or grown men nearby.
2: I Imagining you with your mom drinking coffee, and it's the the same thing with me. Although, I will say I have one leg up on my sister who excels at everything except mommy says, (laughs) I I hope you made bustelo because your sister's coffee this morning was terrible. But that's just between you and me.
0: You know, when it comes to great coffees, yeah, I could put on my two-grader hat and talk about why some coffees are worth 200 bucks a pound and why one's only worth a dollar a pound. But at the end of the day, really what do we teach consumers about how important coffee is and what it should be? Coffee is deceptively complex. So we need to understand that just a cute little cool bag doesn't make great coffee. Coffee transcends political views, religious views, and that's the beauty of coffee. And that's why it's, so important to us. And it's what we try to educate through our shop or through some of the programs that we do.
2: That was Renee Martinez, owner of J. Renee Coffee Roasters in West Hartford. Visit their website, jrenecoffee.com to learn more about the shop and Victus Coffee. That's J-R-E-N-E coffee.com.
1: Marisol, before we talk to our next guest, let's share some of our listeners' favorite coffee shops from around the state. They shared them with us on the Connecticut Public's Instagram.
2: Oh, let's do it. Listeners, you love Story & Soil Coffee in Hartford. So many of you recommended this coffee shop to us. We even got a hot tip from fan P. Sorensen, who says, you haven't lived if you haven't had their strawberry and butter scone. Ooh, that sounds delicious. That
1: sounds fantastic. Rebel Dog Coffee in Plainville and Farmington. You have some loyal fans in Connecticut, like Amy Mueller, Emily underscore Amanda, and Leah Maria.
2: What about Echo Coffee House in East Hampton? They got a vote. Also on the list, Vault Coffee Roasters in Mystic. Apparently, their donuts are a thing. They're featured on their Instagram. That was also a shout-out from Emily underscore Amanda. She knows her coffee. And our Instagram page, because she voted twice.
1: And multiple people lifted up Southington Coffee. Thank you also to Silly Belladonna for letting us know about Purgatory Coffee Roasters in Southington and Middletown.
2: Where do they come up with the names of these coffee shops? Because I love Purgatory. Man, that's good. Uh, Who else do we have? Natalie underscore L recommends Toast and Company in Litchfield.
1: And from Keanu, Source Coffee in Bridgeport. We love their tagline, coffee will help, and it helps with everything, that's for sure. It helps me get through the day, through the night, all of it. And speaking of help, I thought we could use a little help to understand the roasting process. So I talked to Caitlin O'Keefe of Reading Roasters in Bethel. We stood next to her roaster the entire time we talked.
4: This is the Dietrich IR-12. It's a workhorse. I love it. I think it looks like an old school train. It's loud, it's clunky. I've been working on it now for eight years, and it's a pretty simple mechanical machine. I like how simple it is. This is a model that came out before everything was digitized. Um, all of the Dietrichs now have computer software and automation program, which is awesome. I love that. There's nothing wrong with it, but I'm here next to the roaster all day, every day, just working it with my hands and checking out the coffee with my nose and my eyes. and making sure everything is roasting according to plan.
1: Even as we're talking, you're looking down to make sure, seeing what's going on.
4: It also happens to be mesmerizing. I mean, you guys can't see this here, but there's an agitator arm that is in the cooling bin. So when the coffee is done being roasted, I open up the door and it pours out into this tray and it just spins and it just absolutely hypnotizes you. (laughs) It puts babies to sleep. It calms adults. It's really, it's a cool process to watch.
1: The beans are sorted by hand. Pristine beans are selected and then shipped by the coffee traders Caitlin partners with. The roasting process begins when huge bags arrive at the roaster.
4: So the coffee, you know, once we portion it out according to what we're going to need for that week's production schedule and making sure that we have enough coffee for our shelves for our retail customers that walk through the, the door... We weigh out buckets. It's an IR-12. So that's 12 kilos of coffee that my coffee roaster can hold all at once. It's kind of got a sweet spot of 25-pound batches at a time. I don't want to go up to 30 pounds. There's just a little bit more that can go wrong when your roaster is packed so tightly. And that's also something that I kind of learn in time with practice and I bring my 25 pounds of coffee up into the hopper. There's a hopper at the top of my roaster, and that has a door that stays shut until the coffee comes or the roaster comes to temperature and I'm ready to dump that green coffee in. So it goes in this silo basically. When the roaster is at the temperature that I want for this particular roast profile, there's a lever that I hold open and it dumps all 25 pounds of coffee into the roasting drum. And the roasting drum is a cast iron drum, it's a little bit like a front loading washing machine. There's a door in the front it's a little glass window that you can see the coffee going around and around, making sure that everything is looking good. There's something called a trier. It's a little tiny handle with a small barrel in it that I can pull a very small sample, a couple of grams of coffee, and look at it and smell it during the roasting process. So these are all things that I check. I check the visual. I check the audio. Coffee goes through what we call a crack. So it goes through first crack, Um, And then it's a light roast coffee. And when you bring it to second crack, it's a medium roast coffee. And then it never really stops cracking after that. You can bring it to like a full medium or a dark roast or a French roast or an Italian roast. So a lot of our coffee is roasted in the light to medium range. And the reason that I do that is because all of these coffees are so special and they taste unique and they're flavorful and They're absolutely stunning. And people say, okay, well, what what is the best coffee that you have? And that's not a coffee that I can answer. I just make sure that I source what I think is the best representation of the flavor profile that each region has to offer. And I bring in a wide variety of coffees so that no matter what it is that you like, there's something that I can match up for you. So we make recommendations based on if you like something that's chocolatey and nutty or bright and fruity or deep and earthy. And so depending on what that coffee is gonna taste like on its own, I roast it a little bit of a different way. The variables during the roasting process are things like airflow and temperature and gas level. And these are all things that are kind of tweaked throughout the roasting process to make sure that it goes through like exactly the what we call a roast profile that I want to develop all of those things nicely. And each coffee roasts a little bit differently. Um, you know, depending on what the temperature and the humidity is outside or how the moisture content is impacted on the coffee while it's been, you know, in storage for, you know, two weeks. Not that that's a lot. It comes here and it's gone within a week or two. But these are all things that I keep an eye on and just make sure that the coffee tastes consistent when it comes out the other end.
1: You might be surprised how little time it takes for the coffee to work through the stages of cracking to complete the roasting process.
4: It's about 12 to 15 minutes. That's it. Um, that's it. So it's really not a long process. A lot happens inside that process while the coffee is inside the roaster. And then when it comes to the temperature that I like for that particular coffee that I think best highlights and represents what's available, I open up the front door and it comes out into the cooling tray. And then I watch it like a soothed baby until <laughs> it's ready to come out and, and go into its packaging.
1: Well, we were standing over there talking. You were just staring at it the whole time. I can't
4: stop. <laughs> <laughs> The coffee that I roast is anywhere from light to French. 98% of my coffee is light to medium. I carry one coffee that I really like to do in a dark roast, and then we always have a French roast available. So being in a light to medium roast, you're not roasting it for so long and so deeply that you lose all of its flavor so you know the we use a brazilian coffee for our french roast because i talk about it like okay any any cut of steak if you cook it what's well done it's all going to taste exactly the same True so story. we use a really nice brazilian coffee that is extremely simple it's just a wonderful clean kind of sweet a little bit nutty quality coffee and then this way, you know, you're not going to take something that tastes like blueberries and strawberries and lemons and bring it to, to a French roast. And there's just absolutely no reason to do that. Totally. So the light and medium roast coffees that we have, anywhere from 406 degrees to 424 is the big range for us. That's light and medium roast coffees. And then dark roast is around 440 degrees. And this I, is Fahrenheit. I, th- I thought it
1: was going to be a much bigger, like, I thought you were going to say it's, you know, 780 degrees. No. To, you know.
4: So there's such a small window. That's, that's why this is such a, a precise and delicate process, because you can roast a coffee to 416 degrees and then, you know, try it another time at 418 degrees and, and find that you don't like what that does to the coffee at all. There's wow. such an accelerated process. Once the coffee reaches 380 degrees, it becomes exothermic. So it really takes off and, and it just kind of catalyzes itself. And once that starts to happen, the the roast profile, it, it it's impacted so rapidly, so there's really no room for error. It's very easy to mess up the process when you're roasting coffee, especially at that point. So you really need to be mindful and attentive, and you need to listen to, you know, how rapidly it's cracking. You know, it pops. It sounds like popcorn. It's, it's very, very loud. Um, you need to make sure that visually it looks to be about the level of roast that you are expecting it to be, and just really keep a close eye on it.
1: Big thanks to Caitlin O'Keefe, the owner of Reading Roasters in Bethel, for that roasting lesson. Later in the show, a conversation with Stuart Lee Allen, author of The Devil's Cup. Stuart traveled the world drinking and researching coffee. He'll talk about how coffee changed history.
2: Up next, author Jessica Isto shares tips for how to brew craft coffee at home. I'm Marisol Castro.
1: And I'm Chef Plum. You're listening to Seasoned. We'll be right back.
5: This is
2: Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro.
1: And I'm Chef Plum.
2: Well, Plum, small pleasures mean everything right now. That's the truth. And starting the day with a great cup of coffee is getting a lot of us through all these crazy times. But if your brew-from-home game leaves something to be desired, Jessica Isto can help.
1: Her book, Craft Coffee, A Manual, Brewing a Better Cup at Home, really is a manual. Craft coffee is not about fancy coffee. It's about understanding a little bit of the science behind what makes coffee taste good. And it all starts with extraction.
3: There's tons of different molecules that contribute to coffee flavor and aroma. Scientists don't actually know all the ins and outs of it right now still. They're working on it. But these molecules dissolve at different rates. So when I say extraction, that means the water is like going into the coffee particles and then taking out the flavor molecules. And that's what ends up in our cup. There's a bunch of different ones and they don't dissolve at the same time. So the first ones to dissolve tend to produce more perceived acidity and lighter flavors. And the ones that dissolve last contribute more bitter flavors. So that's why if you don't have water and coffee together long enough, it tends to taste overly sour in a bad way. And when you have coffee and water together too long, it tends to taste overly bitter in a bad way. Um, but when you sort of achieve the perfect balance of all of them, of sweet, bitter, and the acidity, it tastes magical. It's sort of this alchemy, and it seems like it shouldn't be that complicated, but there's a lot of things that go into it. And you don't really know, need to know everything to make a good cup of coffee. I would say the main things that contribute to making a good cup is how much coffee you're using, which is called the dose. and the ratio of coffee and water that you're using and then the time it takes you to brew and all of those things are sort of mishmashed together and how they affect each other i
2: was hearing okay water dose time and that brought me all the way back to like calculus and chemistry and now now i'm traumatized i'm just um, super
1: excited that now i can put alchemist on my resume That's fantastic. <laughs>
2: You are you're an alchemist. <laughs> yeah, I do wonder, Jessica. What does this mean? How do you create that balance? Is there some sort of Goldilocks effect? You know how how are we doing this at home? Because truth be told, I don't measure anything. I have the little espresso maker. You should all sleep well. I no longer use the sock approach that my mother taught me. <laughs> uh, that you do with your Puerto Rican coffee. But I have the tiny little espresso maker and there's a little screw and I put the water up to that screw and then I just eyeball how much coffee I actually put in and then when it sounds like it's really bubbling over I, I take it off the heat and I and I throw it in but clearly that is not the scientific way to do well,
3: it well so I always like to say if you're ending up with results that you really love then you don't really need to go into all of this but if you want to hallelujah <laughs> <laughs> but if you want to level up your game um, measuring is a way for you to be able to know exactly what you're doing and how to change things if you don't like your result. Um, so, we could talk about dose first because sure. that's sort of like how much coffee do I use? And in the book, I say, like, if you just want to use scoops and put it in there with the water, that's fine because we don't need a ton of extra stress in our lives. But if you want the ability to be able to tweak your recipe to be more towards your preference, then most coffee professionals recommend measuring your coffee and specifically measuring it by weight. So I always recommend when you're starting out to use a brew ratio, which is coffee to water, of 1 to 15. So that's one part coffee to 15 parts water. And that'll get you in the general area of what at least in the United States, people's preferences are.
1: Hey, I want to hear a little bit too before we get you out of here. I want to hear a little bit about some of your preferred methods of making coffee because there's so many different ways to make coffee at home out there.
3: So right now we're doing a pour-over device called a Bee House, uh-huh. which is just a type of cone dripper. There's lots of different cone drippers out there, but I always always recommend to people if they're starting out making handmade coffee to get a French press because it's super easy. You don't need special equipment and it makes really good coffee. It's basically what happens inside of a machine. It's just that you're controlling how hot the water is and how slowly or quickly you pour the water over it.
1: And talk about filters for a second, because I know that sometimes, you know, in food, if I'm using parchment paper or things like that, it can affect flavors. Can filters, the type of paper, how it's made, how you use it, can that affect the flavor of the coffee?
3: Yeah, it can. Paper filters, most coffee professionals recommend that you just rinse them with hot water before you start brewing so that the paper flavor doesn't end up in your coffee. And if anyone doesn't believe me, they should try that and then taste that water and see what that tastes like. <laughs>
2: Ew. Paper <Wow>. tea. <laughs> yes. Yes.
3: I don't want that. Jessica,
2: before we go, what is your favorite coffee and your preferred method for making your favorite coffee?
3: I don't have one favorite coffee. I like tasting as many different roasters and kinds that I can, but I do prefer to try to find a craft roaster who roasts ethically and sort of uses modern roasting techniques that emphasize what I call the coffee character. As opposed to the roast character of a bean. So I like to taste all those fruity and floral or chocolatey or nutty flavors that come from whatever's inside the bean itself. And more traditional roasts tend to emphasize the heat characteristics of coffee roasting. So those are those tobaccoy, smoky, carbon flavors that a lot of people associate with coffee. But today there's Lots of different people roasting lots of different ways. And coffee can taste exactly like a blueberry if you find the right one. What? What? Yeah. So I would say if you're skeptical about any of this, try to find a local craft roaster that has an Ethiopian natural processed coffee and try to taste that. You can get really nerdy and taste all kinds of things if you sort of explore around. Pour
2: over a French press? Either one. How many coffee gadgets do you have right now? I just
3: need to know. Um, I think maybe a dozen, not including like grinders and other things. No. Just I think the devices. the
1: appropriate question might be, how many have you gotten rid of?
3: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I haven't gotten rid of any.
1: Okay, all I right. have hey, exploded
3: well- a few glass things and gotten replacements, but <laughs> that happens to the best of us.
1: Give some tips on storing coffee at home. What's some of the best ways to keep coffee the freshest at home?
3: I would recommend storing it in the bag that it came in, in a cabinet away from heat and moisture. So the three things that kill coffee is light, moisture, and heat. So as long as you don't, you're not in like a super humid climate or whatever, it should be fine. Stay away from glass containers and don't store it above like the stove or something where steam might come into contact with it. And I, this is controversial and a hot take, but I think that if you're not going to use all the coffee at once, storing it tightly sealed in a plastic bag in the freezer
1: also keeps it fresh. That was Jessica Isto, author of the book, Craft Coffee.
2: Before we take a break, we want to share more of your favorite coffee spots from our Instagram page, because there was a lot of coffee love. So several listeners recommended Ashlon Farm Coffee in Old Saybrook. They roast beans from all over the world. Sarah Elizabeth and Nancy DeWitt also gave the farm a shout out on our Facebook page. Well done, ladies.
1: How about that? And listeners also recommended Cafe Soul in Niantic and Grounded Coffee in Willimantic. I got to check that out. Jenna showed some love for Winfield Street Coffee in Westport and Stanford. That's your neck of the woods, isn't it?
2: And that is totally, I know those cats. Speaking of cats, yeah. the next one. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and two wrestling cats coffee shop in East Haddam deserves a shout out that they got from, ready for this, Metal Eyelash. <laughs> Just for having a great name. Yes, it's a cat themed coffee shop and they brew perfect coffee, apparently.
2: I love the way you roll your R's. I'm working um... on it. Over in New Haven, Ellie and Ollie's dad, among others, gave it up for coffee with a K. And Julia gave a shout out to the Jitterbus. Of course, they're on the list.
1: After a short break, we'll talk to author Stuart Lee Allen about coffee's influence on history.
2: But first... We want you to hear from coffee lovers and seasoned producers Robin Doyon Aiken and Katie Tolarsky about how you can support Seasons and all the shows you hear on
5: Connecticut Public Radio.
1: They drink a lot of coffee.
5: We certainly do. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken with Katie Tolarsky, asking you to pledge your support to Connecticut Public Radio. You just heard two local makers in Connecticut, your community. Jay Renee Coffee Roasters might be your Saturday morning ritual. We love bringing you the voice. Voices of chefs, food makers, and farmers from around the state. When you call 1 800 584 2788 and make a pledge right now, you are saying, I want to hear more stories from the voices in my community who are continuing to grow and cook great food in Connecticut. 1 800 584 2788 is the number to call to support Seasoned and all of the shows you hear on Connecticut Public Radio.
6: That's right, 1-800-584-2788. That's been one of the fun things about this program is getting out into every corner of Connecticut and hearing about uh, different chefs and different interesting people who are making food, who are, um, you know, we've been talking about, I think we did talk to a distillery in Bridgeport. We're going to explore that more in the coming weeks so many amazing things that Connecticut has to offer. So many amazing people and craftspeople, people who are bringing you delicious treats. And it is a bit of an art form, I'd say. I think coffee is an art form. If you, you, know, if you do a perfect cup of coffee, it's, it's not easy, as we're talking about today on Seasoned. And as Robin said, we do love our coffee here both Robin and I and uh, Marisol and Chef Plum. So if you're a coffee drinker, if you're a foodie, or if you're just enjoying this programming, call us now and support at 1-800-584-2788 or go online to wnpr.org.
5: And in case you haven't noticed, there's a bit of a a food theme going on in this campaign's offerings. You can select the New York Times Cooking Digital Subscription when you become a sustaining member of Connecticut Public Radio with your pledge of $15 a month. And you can make that pledge by calling 1-800-584-2788 or go to wnpr.org and select the New York Times Cooking Digital Gift. So call us now,
6: 1-800-584-2788. We are looking forward to hearing from you. Uh, We're looking forward to your feedback. And take advantage of this great New York Times thank you offer. Again, 1-800-584-2788. Or go online to wnpr.org. And thanks so much.
2: Welcome back to Seasons, I'm Marisol Castro.
1: And I'm Chef Plum.
2: When we were planning today's show, we thought, wouldn't it be cool to spend a few minutes with an expert on the history of coffee? Stuart Lee Allen is the author of The Devil's Cup, a history of the world according to coffee. He traveled the world tasting coffee and researching how coffee shaped history.
1: Of course, we wanted to know what motivated Stuart to travel 20,000 miles around the globe to research coffee.
7: Well, really, it was sort of an accident. I was traveling in in India and, and Vietnam at the time. All the cafes I'd been to, which were very unusual. But then when I was in Calcutta, I was doing research at the um, national library there. And um, I ran into this reference to a 16th century theory or 17th century theory that coffee had sparked their French revolution. And that's how I started getting interested in how coffee changed societies. Not in the way like most people talk about like cod or salt, but because coffee is a drug and it affects the human mind, which is the engine of all human history. So it, it, the theory back then, which I think is somewhat true, is that it changed human thought or the function of the human mind in certain ways that induced basically the modern period.
1: The original version of your book was published, you know, 20 years ago. But in 2018, you added a new introduction. What made you want to revisit coffee's influence on civilization in recent years?
7: Well, I've been working on other books related to entheogens. Coffee is a kind of industrialized entheogen. An entheogen is a substance Intoxicating substance used for religious rituals, Whoa. which is actually how coffee came to be discovered. So it's always been a continuing interest of mine.
2: You just mentioned, sort of off the cuff, since you're the historian, that's how coffee was discovered
7: or invented. It discovered, invented. So basically, the coffee being is from Ethiopia, and then it transferred to Yemen, which is just across the Red Sea. In Yemen, it became more like the drink we know, but in Ethiopia back then, it was slightly different. But in both places it had religious manifestations. So like in Ethiopia, there is still a group called the Barisal cult, or Barizar cult, I should say, um, that uses coffee beans in their religious rituals. And the, the classic story of how coffee came to be discovered as a drink was there was a, sh- a shepherd, excuse me, there was a Sufi mystic walking in the fields, and he saw a goat's herd with a bunch of goats. And the goats were frolicking and running around and going crazy. And he asked the goat herder, what have they been eating that would make them do this? And it was coffee beans. So this Sufi mystic took the coffee beans and made a drink out of it. And he found it helped him get into a religious trance and sustain him through long prayer. And if you go to uh, Makkah, there's still a uh, shrine, I should say, to this um, Sufi mystic who is called Al-Shadili, that is said to have been the creation of the drink coffee as we know it, as a religious aid, basically.
2: That makes my cup of Bustelo very different suddenly. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I was just thinking the same thing. Wow, that really changes the whole thought process on just trying to get my coffee in the morning. It's a whole bunch of stuff going on with that right there. I mean, I'm trying maybe I should get some goats, <laughs> I guess. I don't know. let see if the goats can uh, enjoy the coffee, right? Who knows? <laughs> some have said that coffee should be considered the main character in your book, Given some of the darker ways coffee has shaped history, is coffee a protagonist or an antagonist in this story? Or are humans really the the antagonist?
7: In my book, it's both. One of the patterns that it grabbed me as I did the research and traveled around the world looking at it was how coffee played a key role in instigating certain aspects of modern civilization, particularly the Industrialized Revolution, um, which in many ways was positive, but in many ways is negative. But at a certain point, especially in the US, it seemed to me, we became so caffeinated, we developed certain characteristics related to coffee poisoning or caffeine poisoning, where you become hyperactive and have uh, problems concentrating for any length of time on any subject. Those are like clinical symptoms to drinking too much caffeine or coffee. So it's both in my book. I didn't really get into so much the environmental aspects. I think I touched on it briefly, but it has had huge environmental aspects, of course.
2: We wondered about other examples where coffee had a hand in revolutions or significant historical events.
7: The belief, I forget the name of the historian offhand. he was, He's quite well known at one period. He actually um, broke down the three periods of the French Revolution by the types of coffee that were available in Paris at the time. Like there was a, I believe it was a South American dark roast towards the more violent end of it. And he had a very specific theory of it. Whether or not that's true, I don't know, but it, it is definitely true that when coffee arrived, especially in Europe, in England, it was banned by the king because of its connection to sedition and revolutionary thought. And the same was true in France. And it was banned also in Turkey by the, um, the sultan there, the, the leader, of I believe, because he believed that people sitting around in coffee shops were fomenting revolution against them. So he actually put a death penalty on the use of it. And apparently Britain was the first place coffee really came to Europe. And the coffee there was just like completely weird. They didn't even know what to do with it. They put mustard in it and, and <laughs> just awful. Yeah, and they used it as a, um, a laxative also. I won't go into the details. Um, um, the early American coffee, coffee really became cemented as the American drink in the American Revolution. It is said because of the, um, the revolution on tea and there was the taxing and then it became un-American to drink tea and everyone switched to coffee. This is the, the theory. I mean, people dispute these things. I, it's hard to really say what the truth is. But certainly at that point, we switched from tea as a predominant uh, stimulant mm-hmm. to coffee.
1: At a certain point, Stewart set out to find the best cup of coffee in the United States. He drove through New Jersey, Pennsylvania, along the Appalachian Mountains, through Virginia, Kentucky, Tennessee.
7: I found what I considered to be the best cup of American coffee, which is a specific form of coffee, which some people might not like, but it's sat in a pot for a while. It's become really thick and somewhat bitter. Um, And I found it in a place called Adrian, Texas, which was um, we traveled around around on Route 66 all the way across the country. And this was like a semi abandoned town. And just with one cafe, as I recall, one restaurant, one anything really was completely abandoned. And the coffee there was to me the quintessential American cup, which was sort of almost woolly kind of thick kind of brew. And you would need a fair amount of of milk in it to soften it up. But it was I thought it was delicious. I I like American style coffee as well as all the others. So that to me was the quintessential American cup.
2: Stuart, what is your favorite coffee? Are you changing it up every few weeks to try new stuff? Or do you have your your steady Eddie?
7: Um, I change it up all the time. I I often use Cafe Grumpy coffee because I think they're the best. Um, But I do change it up all the time in terms of blends or types of coffee. I generally prefer mocha java because it reminds me of Yemen, I think. Um, But like during the pandemic, you know, a lot of places were closed. So it was, you know, whatever I could find in New York, it was was very, everything was closed for a few months. So, but I I prefer a medium to darker rose personally.
2: And how are you making it at home? French press, pour over, dirty sock? What are you using?
7: Not dirty sock. Um, I use pour over. I personally prefer pour over because it gives you the most control. I mean, I think the best coffees coffees are from Ethiopia overall. Yeah, they're the most complex. I mean, there there are great coffees from all all over the world, but I prefer the Ethiopian coffees because they they tend to have a flowery quality which the South American coffees don't as much. So, but that's a just personal preference.
2: That was Stuart Lee Allen. He's a world traveler and the author of The Devil's Cup, a history of the world according to coffee. I'm Mari Sil Castro.
1: And I'm Chef Plum. Might as well, we gotta go to two wrestling cats right now. So listen, <laughs> Seasoned is produced by Robin Doyen Aiken and Katie Talarski. Please stick around for a few minutes so Katie and Robin can tell you how you can support Seasoned and all the local shows you hear on Connecticut Public Radio.
2: Thanks for listening for your support.
6: The number to call to support Seasoned and all the programming on Connecticut Public Radio is 1-800-584-2788 or wnpr.org. I'm Katie Tularski here with Robin Doyle and You may hear my dog in the background too because I am joining you from my house and Lila is looking for a drink of water, maybe a cup of coffee because that's what we've been talking about today on the program. I love this show. I love coffee and my coffee habits have really changed drastically over the years. When I was younger and had more time to do fancy pour over coffees and now I'm like We've got two toddlers and I'm like, maybe just something quicker is easier and just get some caffeine in me as fast as possible. But I love a great cup of coffee. I love learning about the history of it. We've talked to some great coffee brewers and roasters today. And again, if you are a lover of food or interesting people or Connecticut and want to support this programming, call us now 1-800-584-2788 or go online to wnpr.org.
5: I hear you, Katie. I also have two kids at home. No thirsty dogs, though. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I find I need coffee right now more than ever. It's an absolute joy to highlight a few voices from around the state who are fueling our listeners' lives right now. Mm -hmm. If you value topics and value the voices you hear on this show, support it by calling 1-800-584-2788 and pledging your support. The New York Times cooking digital offering would make a great pledge gift for anyone listening to this show right now. You may find ways to cook or bake with coffee in there. Or consider taking advantage of our partnership with FoodShare and the Connecticut Food Bank we promise to stretch your donation dollars to keep programs like this going and to fill hungry bellies in our state 1-800-584-2788 is the number to call or go to wnpr.org and click donate and you know robin i
6: have to say that a cup of coffee if you get a good cup of coffee is not cheap coffee is expensive you know my husband and i go Um, to our local coffee shop on the weekends and we will you know we will treat ourselves to a cup of coffee but the price of coffee has gone up which is not you know it's not a bad thing people need to support their small businesses
5: especially now we know you're getting a lot of asks at the moment you're probably doling out your support in your community in various ways my family picks a different local restaurant every Saturday for takeout and we're trying to tip generously Your local public radio station, WNPR, Connecticut Public Radio, is like a small business in the community that needs your support, too. Consider donating the cost of your weekly coffee. Maybe that's $10 or $20. Any amount helps keep us going. Um, Again,
6: help us right now, 1-800-584-2788 or wnpr.org. We so appreciate it. Thank
5: you.